Hi there, this is Diego Martinez from Tunes. What you're about to hear is a bonus episode, but it's not like any bonus episode. You see, we've always been fascinated by the creative process that takes place when producers, composers, and performers develop a song that either by purpose or by accident would be remembered for decades to come. You've all heard some of these great stories on our show. But now it's time to go deeper and find out what happens at the place where that creative process materializes and comes to life. And that's the recording studio. Paula Talander and James Gartner greeted us on their world-class recording facility in Oakland, California to talk in depth about the legendary performers that have walked their platinum and gold disc hallway, how they help make a difference in what's played on the radio and on streaming services, and how they're developing the new faces of pop music. This is Inside the Factory, Pajama Studios. Welcome to Starship Enterprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise known as Pajama Lot, we call it, you know. Pajama Studios opened its doors on April 1st, 1993. A typical April Fool's Day, although these folks are no fools. It started with the vision of two-time Grammy-nominated composer, arranger, producer, and engineer, James Gartner, and his business partner, producer and director, Paula Talander. They both met at James's first state-of-the-art studio, Live Oak, set in Berkeley, California, whose clients included people like Alicia Keys, Will Smith, Jody Watley, Chaka Khan, Thomas Dolby, and countless others. At Live Oak, Paula and James toyed with the idea of building yet another place where artists could feel right at home, purposefully designed for James's ear as a composer. I asked him, have you ever thought of building something else? Then the thought was, yes, I would like to do another studio. And then the thought is, well, what would you call it? And so it was sort of a moment, it was a serendipitous moment of two, you know, individuals coming together who are creatives and turning to each other and saying, pajama, universe, you know, like in unison, like like a song in unison. And from that started the quest of, well, where would you build this facility? So we came to Oakland looking for live, work, loft spaces, loft spaces with high ceilings, a creative space. And that's where we found this unique space here in Jack Lennon Square. And we started construction in 91. And it was through, also, we had gone to the Grammys in 92, and it was through literally drawing on on a, on a napkin, James had a certain vision of where from even the reach of how far the credenza is where your outboard is to the mixing council, where is the sweet spot to the speakers and, and how that correlates, where would I put my piano? So he had a certain vision of what his space was gonna look like and feel like as a composer. See, he's a composer engineer. And so then what happened is we started building this facility. It, it took about a year and almost a year and a half to build. This room was built over 20 
something years ago. It's still futuristic even today. I mean, even the uh, RPG diffusers, the marble on the floor, as opposed to, wood. you know, wood floors, you mm. know, and the countertops, you know, and the lighting and where you're setting is away from the area where you're mixing mm-hmm. like that. The I, producer's yeah, desk, there's the cockpit. Because the room was, was, was architecturally designed as a violinist composer's creative mixing room, just like a violin. If you want to do something right, get a Stradivarius. So they built a Stradivarius studio. And that's all these angles and all this stuff, all resonate and all the correlation between, you know, when this sound hits at this point, the speed of the sound, the frequencies, all of that has all all been figured in. So when you're listening, you don't have to worry about, do I have to adjust to what the room is doing? You have to adjust to what you want mm-hmm. because a room is going to generate what you want. And that's the whole thing. The reason why you're not in your living room when you listen to something in the car, it sounds different. Well, it came from here, and the reason why it's going to sound that good in your car, you know, or if you're doing an 808, you need to be able to, to have that stuff actually clearly defined, these third octave things and these upper partials and all that. But it's got to be clean, you know, and, it's, and the way it builds up and it decays, all of that, you know, was in, you know, was actually done, you know, in this room. When you went to a studio, you felt like you were going into a doctor's office. It's hell of impossible to actually feel creative, you know, in their environment. So I wanted to create, a, you know, an environment where you felt like you were at home. That's where, mm-hmm. like a name like pajamas. Yeah, pajamas. Mm-hmm. It immediately. It's like a lifestyle. Uh, it's almost like, oh, mm-hmm. we are already relaxed. If you notice that there's a screen on the wall. Right, and the artist can be on that screen while they're recording. Normally, the booth you'd be able to see it from the control room through there. You'd see it. I purposely put it on mm-hmm. the side mm-hmm. so that when you're listening, you're listening to the artist as if you're listening to a record, not looking at the artist. It's two different things. Mm-hmm. You could look at somebody and and not really know. Forget that you're supposed to be listening, not looking. You see, so when you when you're not looking, you're actually listening. And you can hear the detail, you know. Then you can glance over and, and make sure that they're still alive in there. If they've been a hundred takes or something, you <laughs> right? Know. Yeah, you know, I think they need a glass of water. No, yeah. no, no. And some, and we set it up that the room you can put candles, and then it has this vibe feeling. And usually, you bring the lights down low because it's all about a vibe. It's all about. Yeah feeling comfortable. That's why pajama is like the pajamas you wear or don't wear. It's just so that when the artist is in there, the whole point of why you have the the vocal room or the studio space, because they call this the control room. This is Captain Kirk, the spaceship enterprise. You know, like we we, we watched a lot of uh, Star Trek to get the vibe of the space, you know. But when the artist or the singer or the rap artist or the musicians are in there, then you're listening, like James says, because your focus is in the sweet spot, your, your left and right you know, speakers. And that's why what separates pajama from a lot of studios is because it's a vibe, it's an environment. Like you have the hallways, we have our hall of fame where you have all the plaques and all the awards of all these people who've come through. And then you have a lounge environment, you have a full kitchen. So when someone comes in, it's like a private suite. It's exclusive to create an environment where creativity can flourish. And that's what it's all about. And then our job as Soka James is just to make sure you hit play. 
from the very beginning of Pajama's tenure. It was recognized by MITS magazine as a world-class commercial recording facility, making the cover of the highly influential music industry publication. But before he could place all of those awards and recognitions on Pajama Studios Hall of Fame, James Gartner built a strong reputation as a quintessential artist, fashioned to become the next Quincy Jones, with whom he shared a similar career path and a foundation of orchestra and jazzy big band sound. Born in Monroe, Louisiana, James later moved with his family to Seattle, Washington, where he was discovered by Lulu Fairbanks, heiress of Fairbanks Newspapers and Publishing, on his first solo trombone performance. Fairbanks would sponsor Gartner to perform with the Seattle Youth Symphony Orchestra and study at the famed Cornish College of the Arts. It's here where you can now start to see a recurrent theme in James's life and professional career. Sometimes, in order to go where you want to go, all you need is that first hand on your shoulder from a person who believes in you. Along with Fairbanks, he received the support of multiple award winner and Kennedy Center honoree Herbie Hancock, who recommended Gartner as his replacement on the role of State of Washington's composer-in-residence. Throughout his extensive collaborations with musicians of all genres, James was able to live and breathe music, keeping his heart and soul open to receive different artistic influences. You learn to always keep the doors and windows open. And when you go outside, you know, it's like, where can you get these ideas? Well, everything outside has a a line to it. You know, if we take transparent paper and put it against the window and just sketched the tops or the things that you see as a graph and then put a graph on top of that and then make those into staffs, then all of a sudden you can see where the musicality starts to come out. So maybe the top line is the violin part, you know. We always want to come up with melodies, counter melodies. So you take certain modal things or major, minor, harmonics, even with it. It could be rhythmic or something, right? But it's the whole thing is to be, to see life through the eyes of a painter and then apply that to your music. And you never run out of ideas. And it doesn't have to be complex, but the deeper you get into the colors, the more complexity, depth of the different sounds that you would get into. These things just happen freely. You, you, you just never know. And you become inspired, you see. And that deals with other humans as well. It's like a part of that in a creative thing is almost always on, but you have it shed off. You know, you could be talking with somebody and it triggers something else about them that makes you write another part of what they are needing from you. And that changes all the time. And I don't know how that happened with me, but that's how, you know, Lulu Fairbanks or Herbie Hancock, because Herbie hadn't heard anything I'd ever done. So for him, me to walk into his room, me to just call him up, I'd clear and say, how can I even go to this guy's place? And walk in there with all these people in his room, and he's going like, oh, this is James Gardner. He should be your composer in residence. He hadn't heard a thing that I had done. 
if he hadn't done that, then there wouldn't be what me going into a school system and creating all of these other personalities that grew up to be Supreme Court judges or like a case like a Kenny G becoming a great instrumentalist. But that dealt with them playing that music. You know, that was getting inspired from them. I challenged them, they challenged me, and we just all elevated up to another level of, com of communication. Speaking of Kenny G, James was instrumental in discovering the raw talent of the saxophonist, who has sold over 75 million records to date and is the subject of an upcoming documentary called Listening to Kenny G, premiered at the 2021 Toronto International Film Festival. Under his commission as State of Washington's composer in residence, Gartner conducted original compositions and taught high school and college youth. Kenneth Bruce Gorlick, still in his teens, was one of James's early mentees. Their long-standing friendship was born from a composer's request. James had to fill the chair. There was a missing instrumentalist that had to fill the spot. So he that's why he told those two kids, hey, whoever can circle a brief like Grover Washington gets the gig. Because for the composition that James wrote, he required that instrument to be at the point of circular breathing, so the, so the phrasing, so the emotion was kept intact. So, and actually, it's just like, all he did was just run with what was told to him, and he just happened to keep doing that. When it came time for me to pick somebody to be the principal soloist in a very white concert tour, it was only that these other ingredients had happened with Kenny. But I said, the person that needs to do this, hands down, is Kenny. Kenny was following that, R&B thing. And a lot of players at the time were still, you know, in the bebop, you know, pop, not pop, but swing, even past swing, bebop, post-bebop, you know, and all that. They're into playing chord change, chord progressions, changes, you know, that, you know, because they're, you know, caught up, you know, in the technique and the old school and stuff like that. He was always open to receive, so much so that his eyes were like glassy and he always had that smile. I can't remember a day at all where he didn't have that smile and a day where there was anything ever negative with him. I don't remember him not being humble and he was the head of the class in, in calculus. Anything that he put his mind on, you know, he was like a savant you know, and multitudes of different physics, you know, great mathematics. But these things are just all part of his, his puzzle's makeup, you know, of him having his discipline. So just like myself, you'd practice, and you got to do these things by yourself. you got to be driven for that happiness. And you do it each time you play something or do, you know, write a chart, you're going, wow, that, that, that was great. And you can't get enough of it. So you keep on getting wanting more. So with Kenny, the getting more would be me writing more notes and him saying, no, I can't, I, you know, smiling. He said, you know, show me some more. Okay. You know, so then you open up the universe and, and God, you know, spikes me down with a whole new series of notes. I pass it down over to him, to the kid, you know, and all, all of a sudden, little G baby is born. I mean, you know, <laughs> and uh, and he still does that 
even now. I mean, he's exactly the way he was when I first met him. And we still have that same kind of, you know, jousting. You know, I'll write something and say, cool, to see you play that. And then he puts that Kenny G smile on. So Kenny takes you on his journey with him. And he'll start off with something as a melody that's basic, beautiful, Ravel melody, Debussy, with something very pretty. And you're going, wow, it's like the snake charmer. He just got you wrapped up. And all of a sudden, he's going to put his coils around you. And you're going to go out and buy more of his records. <laughs> it's something like that. It's something like that. And you can watch him because he still gets locked into that. You know, he'll get locked into the audience where you never know when he's going to be Bruce Lee on you again. I mean, you know, I mean, quite literally. He digs it. He loves it. He loves that jousting. He's waiting for that person that turns their head away, that's going to make him go like, well, wait a minute, I'm going to get you to listen to what I'm doing and have a smile and never be negative about it. You know, that's the whole gig. And never give up either, you know. In James and Paula's relationships with the musicians that have walked through the doors of Pajama Studios, several things stand out. A determination to be fearless and never giving up. Humbleness, a sharp work ethic, and of course, undisputed real talent. Curiously enough, on the day of my conversation with James and Paula, one of Pajama's star alumni was enjoying another trip around the sun. When she was just 14 years old, this Houston, Texas native stepped into the vocal booth along with her mom to record her first album as a member of an emerging girl group called Destiny's Child. They all witnessed the birth of a phenomenon called Beyonce. She was not too much any different than the involved girls, or any, any of the, the Rosa Gates, you know, for example. They were trained, you know, as professionals. Whatever was needed, they were already prepared to do what they needed to do. You see, so, and a mom would come and just sit there, you know, and she had that Kenny G smile and just did, did it, and did it, and did it. And said, yeah, is there anything more? That's what you need. She never, you know? she never used the word I can't. Yeah. No, she was 14, I think, going on 15. So the producer who was producing her, his name was Dwayne Wiggins, and he brought the project to Live Oak Studios, which was James's first studio, and here to Pajama. So she was in both both facilities working on her on her work. And when she came here, she was alone. She was the singer. The whole vision that her parents had was always about Beyonce. So they had the other girls around her. It's kind of like, think of like Diana Ross and the Supremes, but they just called it Destiny's Child. So there was four girls, but we only saw the main girl, and that was Beyonce. And she was very quiet, very shy, very but when she stood on that mic. And when she was, she commanded respect. She just sang, sang from her heart. And her mother was in the industry because she was a, um, uh, dealt with uh, as a stylist. Her whole vision was to, to package the artists, what they would wear, how, how they would look, you know, for preparation for any photographs or music videos. So she had been working in the industry, her mom. And she had really good work. Oh, work ethics. ethic. And yeah. you'll notice that the people that you're talking about became successful because of the, the work ethic, you know, and never 
would say they couldn't do it. They were always striving to be better and better and better. Even when, when it wasn't good, it was never not good. <laughs> so they just got better and better. They were following the sun and, and wanting to get more of that light on them. Beyonce wasn't the only girl laying vocals for the first time at Pajama. Back in mid-1989, Paula and James nurtured the careers of four young women from Oakland who called themselves For You, then Vogue, but ultimately settled on En Vogue. Terry Ellis, Don Robinson, Cindy Heron, and Maxine Jones were green but full of drive when it came down to recording their debut album, Born to Sing, which produced the hit single, Hold On, and earned a Grammy nomination for Best R&B Performance by a duo or a group. We were all doing music. They'd do the backgrounds and work at, once again, the attitude, you know, was we're gonna do harmonies. And they were workaholics. They'd be in my backyard at Livo, practicing their harmonies for hours and hours. And then who's gonna go into the booth and sing? You know, and they'd still be practicing. This would go on all the time, but they just loved it. It's like they found the right piece of cake that they couldn't, they all had to eat the same piece at the same time, you know, had cake all over their face and their fingers and stuff. But but they still were sharing it though, you mm-hmm. know, and they couldn't get enough and stuff. But, but because of that work ethic, just like Kenny, they all became something. He had two spaces. He had the Live Oak Studios, which was the first floor of this beautiful Victorian estate. And then on the top floor, which he called the attic, was Touch Tone Productions, his production company. So the girls would come upstairs, and that's where you have what we call now In Vogue. But then there was another young lady. Her name was Nikita Jermaine. James ended up getting her a record deal with Motown. Now she's with a group called Train, and he mentored her. And then Rosie Gaines. She was also part of The Girls, and she went on to be get her first album, which was done at Live Oak. Well, she would actually be the foundation Rosie know, was, a, yeah. of excellence. Her and, like, a Brenda Vaughn. Yes, Brenda and, you Vaughn. Know, these, these singers set the stage for, if you're going to be in the game, you're going to have to be able to blow, and, mm-hmm. and they could. Pajama has also been host to some of the most revolutionary sounds in hip-hop and rap from both the East and West Coast of America, including people like E-40, Master P, Lunas, and Tupac Shakur. He must have been Charlie Parker. He came so prepared. When he flows, he's like doing bebop. he's, He's actually doing that. I mean, you know, the parallel between, you know, that improvisation and then the wordplay with it and and the spontaneousness that he could do that and being so schooled and prepared, but then having the depth of society, social issues and all of that. I mean, you know, besides poetry and the histories of things, you know, the guy was a genius. You know, but a lot of the artists, the upper echelon you know, that came out of Oakland were at that at that mental level, really high mental level. You may hear about other things that they do, but when they show up in the studio, very few people had depth, you know, and they all had God, you know, in there. 
presence, you know, that they had the Bible and them notes and things had to come from someplace. The studios created a nice backdrop and place to flow. It was a sanctuary. This was like, pajamas was like church. And we're we going to throw it down today. And that vibe would be in that room. You'd be surprised. It's an art form. <laughs> it's truly an art form. Yeah. Because you have so much density of words to express and to make sense. And it's a cadence and, and tone all against a beat and a rhythm. It's truly an art form. People don't realize what an art form it is. Yeah. And, and that's still probably the most appreciated genre of, of the rap thing was in those years, those Sibo mm-hmm. and the EA Skis, all, all of these artists. Mm-hmm. Drew Down, you know, uh, uh, E-40. They all had a sound, a rhythm. Mm-hmm. And they knew what the game was in terms of technique. And if you didn't have that game, it, it was like being a, a jazz improvisations. If you couldn't, if you couldn't solo, don't get on, on my bandstand. As someone who's experienced in the field of music education, and in launching the careers of important names in the industry, it made perfect sense for James Gartner and Paula Talander to put all that experience in forming the new generation of producers, engineers, and performers through the Gartner Music Mentoring Program a venture that was suggested by a friend of his while attending a concert of his most famous pupil. We were actually at a Kenny G concert with a couple that had a child, you know, and uh, the child's mother said, maybe you should have a school of James and I could have my child come rather than go to college and work and be mentored by you. I was like, that sounds a little crazy. I said, yeah, 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 that's the ticket. So, And that's how that name formed, Gardner Music Mentoring. Yeah, that's how all of that came about. I really, never really have done a lot of advertisement. It's always been word of mouth, how people find me or something. But I don't go out there and solicit, you know, I don't send out tapes and, and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, so then it just started, you know, catching on and, you know, more and more students and then started auditioning with American Idol and a bunch, a bunch of other things. But these could be a sax player. You know, it could be a, a student in composition. Singer, you know, composition, it could be composers. someone from, from Japan yep. that becomes a brilliant composer. classical composer. So for me, it was really cool because I could use all these disciplines of what I've studied and have done and not just in one thing. I don't have to be classical necessarily. I don't got to be jazz necessarily. I don't have to be hip hop necessarily. I could be East Indian that day if I want to be. I mean, you know, so that was the cool thing. It was just a world of music. And that's how I was taught to be very schooled in your discipline musically. It goes back to what we discussed before, which is putting your hand on a shoulder. Someone always puts your hand on your shoulder always finds a path. It takes a village to raise up anything, an artist, a person, anything. So it was when Herbie Hancock put his hand on James's shoulder and introduced him to the school system. And then they, two weeks later, they're calling him up. And he said, you should give this kid the composer in residency. It's sort of coming back full circle. So Gardner Music Mentoring is another way of putting your hand on another shoulder. So out of that birthed so many young uh, it was a great little story is that kid that he was talking about where the mother said he should go to the school of James. It was a young kid. He was around 17, Tyler Combs. 
he did a whole year mentorship with us. And the first day of his mentorship, he got to meet Kenny G because Kenny G happened to be in town. And then there was another mentoring student. His name is Justin Hawkins. He's was mentored with us for four years. And now he's opening up in a band for Billie Eilish. And his mother is an incredible recording artist named Miko Marks, which we did her album here. So it's just like this symbiotic relationship. While many of its competitors in the Bay Area had sadly closed their doors during the COVID-19 pandemic, Pajama Studios is still going strong. Paula and James, both members of the Recording Academy, have submitted a lengthy audiobook for Grammy consideration, which they co-produced, recorded, mixed, and mastered, called Abella, A Voice for the Voiceless, narrated by Paris Lane. Meanwhile, James is moving Pajama towards the future of digital recording. He's envisioning a multimedia company that aims to continue providing production services for major independent record labels, musicians, films, TV series, and even video games through the use of virtual reality technology. Taking the facility of Pajama shooting it and having you be in the sound of this room in your home with VR glasses, be able to turn the knobs, record your artists, change your speaker settings, same depth of image, sound, depth imaging, and, and all of that surround sound all through that thing. So it's like you have master classes. Imagine that now being with VR and actually being in the same room with that person and being able to have this kiosk of different buttons that respond to questions and they answer back like they're really answering to you. Other students interacting with you all within the internet connections all simultaneously. So the studio is going to become more digital. We'll be phasing out analog type components and going more satellite, you know, because now we're dealing with China, Japan, you know, you know, all these countries with their artists, their labels, and they're studying what we're doing here, you know, as producers. You know, be surprised how many people, you know, wanted to know how the Oakland <laughs> sound is it say you something they said, you know, we want to mix that pajama studio, the same place where so and so you know, rap thing. It's a big big underground thing happening, you know, with that. But we're into that next huge phase, you know, being digital and virtual. Another step for Pajama is the launch of its own record label, Pajama Music Group, in partnership with Coulter Scene Music Group, co-founded by seasoned executive Shakiji Abdul. Pajama Music will be closely involved in developing rising talent, like singer-songwriter Shina Gray, as well as former Gartner pupil Xenia C. We've been servicing the industry as a commercial world-class recording studio and then mentoring students along the way. And so the next evolution is Pajama Music Group, a label. And so we have partnered with Cultrazine Music Group, and the head of that is Shaki Abdul, who has been in the music industry for years. 
as an executive. And we've decided to pool ourselves together, like join our ships. And we have a few artists that we've been developing. One is Zinya Z. She's a pop rock artist that James has been producing. We've been producing her, working with her. And then this other new upcoming artist, her name is China Gray, which is a culture zine artist. She just flew in from Chicago and we're just working on her ballad. And then the, the, the focus is to put all these different artists that culture zine has, that we have as pajama and come together and have a conversations with the major labels to work out a partnership so that we're actually now producing our own content and releasing our own content. And instead of just being the servicing side, now we're content creators. As we've already created the environment, you're just expanding it. It's like the evolution of it so that it's a global experience. And then also, but it's incorporating all these different elements that we have. That's why when I say it takes a village, that's why we have ourselves. And then we have our partners, Culture Zine Music Group. We have my production company, Tea Time, James's production company, Touch Tone, Pajama. And it's like this beautiful, happy family, but it's giving the artists a platform again to create, to evolve to really put what they have from their heart, their mind, their spirit, and leaving enough room, as James says, for God to walk in it and stay and print it and share it with the world. It's that simple. Thanks to both Paula Talander and James Gartner for their contributions to this episode. And a shout out to Marcel Caldera III for assisting us with visuals during our visit to Pajama Studios. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly, Diego Martinez. Our executive producer is Nicholas Nick Fresh Buzo, and our audio engineer is Adam Fogel. Follow Tunes all over social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TunesPod. That is C H O O N S P O D. Please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it will help other folks discover our content. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.